1 John, and we finished last week in the, in the uh, second chapter in about the 18th verse. And uh, we looked at, and uh, it dawned on me as I was uh, driving home last week, it dawned on me that we had, uh, in the last three or four weeks, have been on some awfully serious topics. In fact, so much so that I wanted to say, you know, John, uh, buddy, you got another, uh, what, two and a half chapters here, and you seem to be saying the same thing a lot. Which always drives home the point that what he's saying is very important. John continues to build a case and interweave it, bring it all together for us so we can look at it. And he's been giving us, if you will, a warning. Just by way of a quick review, John is writing in a time and a day in which the church was under attack. Remember, the church had existed for about 60 years. The church was under attack, not from the outside. They weren't dragging them into the Colosseum, per se, and, uh, and uh, slaughtering them. They'd been through that. They'd survived that. But now it was an attack that really scared John, also scared the Apostle Paul, and very candidly scares me today. It was a subtle attack. He writes a letter against the Gnostics, the skeptics, and those that are out there that say, you know, uh, this is a good book, but it needs to be interpreted in light of the 90th A.D. man. Uh, you know, some things never change. And this resurrection is okay, but it really wasn't resurrection. It was a picture. And John said, no, that's not the case at all. He said, I want to write you, and I come in contact with, that think that way. Here's what he says, verse 18. We pick it up just to tie together last week so we have the context for this week. He says, the Antichrist, and you've heard this, the Antichrist is coming. But even now, verse 18, there are many Antichrists. And then he tells us a little bit about what an Antichrist is like. He said, first of all, verse 19, these are guys that went out from with us. These guys were in the church, many of them. Not only in the church, but they had a prominent role in the church. Uh, they were involved in the church. Uh, they were teachers in the church. He said, watch out, there are wolves in sheep's clothing. And as we said last week, that doesn't mean somebody dressed up like a sheep, somebody with a sheepskin around him. Uh, that means, as it would in that day and age, the uh, teacher would wear, or the shepherd would wear wool. The false prophet in the Old Testament dressed and looked just like the real prophet. He's saying, watch out for these people. The church. They'll take over pulpits. They'll teach Sunday schools. They'll get a room at the Radisson. And they'll hold Bible studies. And, and, and they'll change the words. He says, watch out for them. Be on guard. Here's another thing about them. Verse 23, he said, here's how you can tell these antichrists, and it's pretty easy to spot them. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. These are the guys that are going to deny the Christ. They're going to deny Jesus Christ. Paul says, in, in, or Peter says in one place, they will deny the Master. They will knock on the door and talk to you about Jesus, but the Jesus that they talk to you about is totally different than the Jesus you and I believe in. They will talk about Jesus, the created being. And he said, look, at, don't have anything to do with him. And men in a world that is very confused, Tim LaHaye says, and I think he's dead right, there's a battle waging for your mind. There's a spirit. I think those are all true statements. And in the midst of this battle, rather than study the enemy's propaganda and literature, I would suggest to you, study this book cover to cover, know this book, and you'll know false doctrine when you hear it. And when somebody comes to you, all you need to talk about is Jesus Christ. That'll set the groundwork, and then you can go from there. He said there's a third characteristic about these antichrists, verse 26. 
He said, I've written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Now, they are not neutral in this battle. They are aggressive. They are trying to deceive you. There's an active solicitation uh, into this false doctrine. Paul said, in the last days, you've got to watch out for these guys. They'll be lovers of men and lovers of self and all these other things. But he said they will be religious. Now, they won't hold to this form of godliness because they'll be studying and studying and studying and growing in knowledge, but, but never learning. Well, we spent three weeks essentially laying out, saying, watch out for these guys. And if you're like me, I was driving home uh, last week and I thought, you know, I could have these guys so beat up and defeated that they may just be ready to throw in the towel. I mean, we've been three weeks of this stuff, and we've been saying this enemy is a subtle enemy, he's a bright enemy, it's a complicated thing. Watch out. Here's the good news, verse 20, guys, and I'm glad you're here uh, to take this in, and I think it's uh, important. I find great comfort in it. He said this, But you who have anointing from the Holy One, you all know. He said, there's something called anointing that you have from the person of Christ. The person of Christ has anointed you. Something exciting has happened to me. Those of you that know me well uh, might see this as a... About a week and a half ago, I, uh, I had installed in the house a, a computer. I'm not a, a detail... Anybody that's ever done any business with me knows I'm not a detail guy uh, um, at all. And uh, I'm not a computer guy. I used to teach that they were satanic. Uh, that when you turn them on, 666, and they would program you. But, so I have a friend, and it just became clear to me that these computers are not going to go away, and I need to figure out how to work one. So then I figured out, well, I didn't need to know how it worked. I just need to know how to work it. So I have a friend, and this guy took absolute control, and I told him not to bring that baby over until it was user-friendly, intimately user-friendly. And uh, so he brought it over for the install, and we're doing this thing, and we're working it, menu-driven, all the things that go with it. I mean, I'm just, I'm just blowing through this thing. I can't believe it. And I discover something new in there every day. Well, he had put a, bro a Bible program in, and I didn't even know it was in there. Hit the Bible program, boom, up it comes. So I figured, oh, this will be exciting. This will give me a chance to study. So I'm all the way back and doing some of the Greek and the original text, which I never do. Uh, I, I maybe pick it up from a commentary or something. So just for the heck of it, I had verse 20 up and the word anointing. And I hit the button to go back to the original and it said in the original it means to rub. And then there's another derivative to which it means to smear oil. And then it went to the primary meaning of the word anointing. And to me, all of a sudden, it totally changed this verse. The primary meaning of the word that's used there means to furnish what is needed. Now that changes that verse completely. But you have been furnished what is needed by the Holy One. Christ has given you what you need in the midst of this battle. Rather than drive out of here and be overwhelmed by it, I can drive out of here and rejoice and say, I've been given everything I need to fight this battle. Keep your finger right there and go to John's Gospel. Same author, it's uh, uh, toward the front of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book, and the 14th chapter. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 14. 
and verse 16. Jesus is speaking. If you have a red-lettered Bible, these words are red-lettered. He said this, I'll ask the Father and He will give you another helper. The word helper is capitalized, probably, in your Bible, which refers to the deity. It refers to the Holy Spirit. And He will be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. Now, we put the things together and John says, you have been furnished everything you need. Here's what you need. John chapter 14, verse 16. You've been furnished the helper to give you everything you need. Now, there's something interesting about the helper. Here it is. The world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. Men, there's some good news. Jesus said this, I'm going to give you everything you need. Here's what you need. You need the Holy Spirit. And He comes into you, and He cannot come into the world because they will not receive Him. They do not know Him. Jude says it this way. In Jude chapter 17, he said, Beloved, you ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to him, in the last time there shall be mockers, following after their own godly lust. These will be the ones who cause division. Now watch out of these guys. They will be worldly-minded and devoid of the Spirit. See, you've been furnished everything you need to fight this battle because you have the Holy Spirit. Now here's how it plays itself out. In the midst of this battle, you against the world, You against the world system. Satan against God with you as the participant, as the warrior on God's side, if you'll allow those terms. Ephesians chapter 6, here's what he says. He says, put on the full armor of God. Now here's what you have. You've been furnished everything you need. Here's what you have. He said, put on the belt of truth. You have truth. He said, put on the breastplate of righteousness. He said, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all flaying arrows. He said, in the middle of this battle, they're going to be zinging these arrows at you, but you've got this shield, and you can pick those babies off. It's your faith. He said, there's going to be those that are come, and they're going to attack, and when they attack, put that faith up. I had this long, convoluted discussion with a guy the other day, and he was questioning this and questioning that and questioning this, and finally it gets men to the point where it always gets, I think, He said, why do you believe this? And I said, I believe it because it's true. Well, how do you know it's true? I said, because I have faith. And ultimately, I come to that. I mean, I can lay out all this evidence, and you guys have seen it so many times. There's so much intellectual data to support what we believe. I mean, just to look at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and to take the human data, not God's Word, just the human data, the historical evidence, what the Scripture says about just the circumstance at the time and the the players involved, it's overwhelming. You can't conclude anything but a resurrected Christ. Now, if you don't want to believe that, what you need to say is, I don't want to believe it. But I'm telling you, I'm going to stand on the faith. And that's what he's saying. He said, you've got the shield of faith. You've got the helmet of salvation to protect your head. Ephesians 6.17, you've got one offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He's given us everything we need. John says it and Jesus says it. 
You've got in this battle everything you need in the person of Jesus Christ who gives you the Holy Spirit and He didn't leave you as an orphan. He didn't leave you all alone. And you've got something that the world cannot receive. You ever sit down with somebody and talk about your faith and you build this case and it's so logical. A plus B equals C. C equals D. D equals S. Therefore, C equals S. There's no way you can dispute it. You can't even argue about it. There it is. It's so clear. It's so obvious. And that guy will go, I don't see that. Uh-uh. Two plus two equals seven and three quarters. No. And sometimes I get so frustrated and I say, what is it? And I have a tendency to look at my own life and say, well, it must be me. I mustn't communicate this stuff very clearly, which every once in a while I know that's the case. But I'll sit in those very basic... And you know what it is? I need to go back to 1 Corinthians 2.14 and understand that this guy cannot see. He's blind. He does not have the Spirit of God and he will not see until God's Holy Spirit comes upon him. And this guy needs to be praying and I need to pray that God will give him eyes to see and ears to hear. Isn't that something? Uh, look at verse 21, back to 1 John. Uh, John picks up exactly that theme. He said this, I have written to you, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because there's no lie in the truth. He said, I'm writing to you guys because you're part of the believers. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son, who never denies the Son, does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father. Now he says this, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If you heard from the beginning, I'm sorry, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. He said this, I want you to abide, which means to stay or to remain, in what you heard from the beginning. I mean, I look around at some of your faces, and, and I just feel honest sometimes, like I'm just saying the same old thing over and over and over again. And I'm saying, if I'm saying it, then they must be hearing it over and over and over again. But see, I discovered that's not necessarily true. Uh, I came through the house the other night, and there was a, a Sarah. Sarah was there, and there was a little mess there. I said, Sarah, look it. I know you're busy and I know you got some stuff you want to do and I've got some stuff I'd love to have you be able to do, but until you get this mess cleaned up, let's not do anything else. Okay? This is our focus. We live to clean this mess up at this point. <laughs> got you, Dad. Off I go. And I'm in the back and I'm uh, dinging around with this computer and hitting my buttons and all the other things. And I come back and there's Sarah in the same position I left her about 20 minutes ago with the same mess. I said, Sarah, come here. Huh? I said, I want you to stand up, to walk over, and to clean up this mess. Okay, gotcha, Dad. I said, no, uh-uh. See, when you gotcha, Dad, you're going to rise to your feet. And you're going to put one in front of the other and stop at this pile. And you will begin to pick up the pile one by one by one until the pile disappears. Then she said something really interesting. She said, oh, Dad, I hear you. See, now, she heard me before, 
but she didn't really hear me before. There's a whole bunch of elements that go into hearing, at least four. Here's the first one. First of all, you got to hear it. It's got to go into your ears. Remember Jesus? I mean, the master communicator. If anybody could communicate, it was Jesus Christ. He sits with 4,000 people. He delivers a beautiful sermon. And then when he's all done, he says, Ye who have ears to hear, let him hear. I mean, what is he at the you know, school for the deaf? Or what's the story? Can't these guys hear? What's the problem? Well, he says there's more to hearing than just having the words go in the ear duct. He said, first I've got to hear it, and then I've got to believe it. See, I can hear that Jesus is the Christ. I can hear God's in control of my life, but I've got to believe that it's true. And that's not enough. I've got to believe it, and once I believe it, I act upon it. You and I are creatures who act upon our beliefs. I mean, our life is based on that. I'm, I'm getting ready. I'm going to go down. I'm going to climb on United Airlines. I'm putting my faith and trust and life in United Airlines. And I believe it can get me to San Francisco. And because I can believe on it, I'm going to act on it. And then there's a fourth element of hearing. I'm going to trust it. See, I believe that you and I should lead stress-free lives. Well, the heads always move on that. There shouldn't be any anxiety. In fact, if you guys say you're Christians, God's Word said it's a sin for you to be anxious. It's a sin for you to be anxious. I mean, we list all the sins that we do. When's the last time you confessed that you were anxious? It's a sin. And here's why. God's in control. There's not one of you that doesn't hear that God's in control. Almost every penny of you that don't believe it. But it kind of breaks down at that point. God's in control. God's in control of my business. So I'm going to bust my pick to make sure God's not embarrassed. I'm going to work real hard because I don't know if God can handle it or not. Poor old God's reputation's on the line on this one. I don't want to let God down. God's in control, man. Now that's no excuse to sit back. I think I've shared with you before, we have a friend, uh, uh, acquaintance, not a friend, uh, who lost his job and he knew God was in control, so he decided he would sit home until the phone rang with a job offer. Okay. Well, God is in control, but God has a joint venture partnership arrangement with you and me. We're joint venture partners. He supplies the enthusiasm, he supplies the power, he expects you and I to execute it, to work. So I hear it, I believe it, but I gotta trust it. I gotta trust that God's in control. I gotta act as though God's in control. And what that means is I can lay down at 10.30 at night and wake up at 5.30 in the morning. Not every hour on the hour. Wondering when the title company opens so I can call to see if the money's there yet. No. And boy, that's a tough message, but that's exactly what he says. He said, I want you to hear this word. You've heard it from the very, very beginning, and I want it, and this is a key word in all of our faith, verse 24, to abide, to stay. Let the word abide in you. Literally, let it get about it. Let it get in there and stay in there. Uh, Paul writes a letter to the church at Philippi, and he says this, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Okay, we know that. Philippians 4, 6. Now, here's the result of being anxious for nothing and praying. Being anxious for nothing and praying about everything. He said, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds. 
The result is peace. Not quite done. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these. Think about something. Again, this computer has taught me one thing. I sit down there and this thing doesn't make mistakes. If there's a mistake and it doesn't work, I made the mistake. This baby, I'm loving this because it's logical. It always does the same thing. It's so predictable. If I hit this, it hits that. But what I've discovered is what I put into that computer comes out of the printer. If I, if I type this baby all the way through and I run it through and I've got the typos in it, I get the typos out on the other end. It's the same thing with your mind. The junk that goes in is the junk that stays in. And the junk you think about comes out. That's why you have to really, really be careful what you see. God's Word, I don't think, I don't think that's there. I mean, I've squint. Maybe it is. Maybe I can't. Maybe with my computer I can get to the original text and it's there. Don't go to movies. I don't think so. But I'll tell you what, it's hard for me to sit and watch these 25-foot quasi-naked women and watch out of there and blot them out of my mind. I'm just not very good at that. He says, your mind is going to dwell on something. That means ponder or meditate. He said, here's what you ponder and meditate. What you heard from the beginning. What did you hear from the beginning? Well, that Jesus is God. And I heard all the stuff that's in there. He says, in his word, take the book and hide it in your heart. Just meditate on it day and night. Man, that's a great reveal. How am I doing spiritually? So we look and we get our giving statement from the church and we run down all the other stuff. Those are fine and those are indicators. But here's a real good indicator. If you get stood up for that lunch appointment today and you're kind of sitting there and it's just uh, you and the uh, croissant sandwich and an iced tea and you're just there, no USA Today, no waitress bothering you, no nothing, what's your mind thinking about? See, now there's a real good spiritual indicator. There's a great indicator of where your priorities are. He says, I want you to think about what you heard from the beginning, the Word of God. Verse 25, he said, this is the promise which he himself made. Here's the promise. The promise is eternal life. Kind of interesting promises. I had a promise me you would call me Friday. And I said, well, I forgot. See, a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. Here's what he says. Well, and let me even back up. Not only the one who makes it, but his ability to do what he says he's going to promise. He said this, here's a promise that God made. Here it is, eternal life. You know, every once in a while, I tend to forget that. I think, I've, I, I think we talked about death last week, if I'm not mistaken. But I'm sitting at, the, at Hayden and McKellops, you know, where the Green Acres funeral home is. And I'm just sitting there yesterday, and I mean, I'm minding my own business. I'm dwelling on heavenly things. And I look over to my rock people, and it was like out of some. It was like I was looking for a what's his name? Who's the who's the uh, European guy? Oh, who? No, Igmar Bergman. You know the guy that does these things where you watch the thing and you go, oh wow, that's deep. Don't know what it means, but I know it's deep because I don't know what it means. 
And it's always in black and white, and black is good. And I look over, and everybody over there is dressed in black and white. And they're all standing around, and this guy's going into the ground. And I, just one more time, I said, that's me, and I don't know when. But I'll tell you what, I don't know when, but I know what happens right after that. And it's verse 25 of Second John chapter 2, eternal life. Guys, I'm telling you, I don't have any question about it. Bam, and I'm in the presence of the Lord. That's what Paul knew. That's why he said, i got a problem. Because I really do enjoy you people, but to die is not a bad deal. He said, that's the promise, it's eternal life. And men, there's a great freedom in that. There's a great sense in that. One of the men came into our Bible study Tuesday morning, and his father has been very, 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 very sick. I said, how's your dad? And he said, he died last night at midnight. And he cried a little bit. And men, that's good, and that's healthy, and that's natural, and I'd be disappointed if he didn't, and he's going to miss him, and they're close, and they should be close, and they are. And there's going to be those times, I think about, I talk, I think I mention this every once in a while, every Sunday morning, about, every Sunday afternoon, about one, 13 years, my phone rings and my dad's there, every Sunday morning, every Sunday afternoon, never misses. Now there's a day coming when that phone won't ring, and he won't be there. And there'll probably always be that little thing where I'll, Listen, he always calls it commercials. He's a very kind man. <laughs> and I know it's coming, and there'll be a time, and there'll be a lot of tears, and there'll be that. And this guy walked in, and he said, yeah, I feel bad, but he said, I know where he is today. He's with God. What's the promise of eternal life? See, this book takes a lot of tension out of life. In a world that's kind of going like this, here's a constant. And it's as though John lets you dwell on the good for about oh, a second and a half until he comes back in verse 26 and he says, Now I'm writing these things because there's those that are going to deceive you. There's those that are going to deceive you about eternal life. They're going to tell you everybody goes to heaven. They're going to tell you, you may not even, they're going to tell you there may not even be a heaven. Uh, let me just, this is kind of, fun for me and just kind of patronize me a little bit just as I try not to philosophize any but this satanic verse thing is interesting to me the book you know the book and the fjord and the Muslims are rebelling and, and, and the Muslims are slanted and feel slighted by the, by the book hey guys I got no compassion for these guys my faith is thrown under the bus every day Carl Sagan is on TV he gets on and slanders my faith he gets on there every time and says, there's no God, there's no God that created this. He says essentially, I have billions and billions and billions of brains and you don't have any and I believe that there's no God and you believe there is, you're a fool. That's essentially what he says every day that he's on television. And the same thing that Donahue does and Oprah does and Geraldo does and they slander and they cut apart your faith. The most discriminated group in this country are those that are born-again Christians. I mean, if they made a movie about Muhammad like they made about Christ, these guys would go crazy. I mean, if they even depicted John Kennedy or Martin Luther King like Fuhrer in Hollywood not long ago and people were really upset 
And, and it was right at the same time of the last temptation of Christ. And if you read the articles when they came out, they said, we, uh, we don't appreciate this. This borders on blasphemy. This is wrong. And I thought, well, that's kind of unusual for uh, Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray. They were talking about a movie that was going to be made of John Bellucci that was going to portray him as a drug addict. <laughs> I mean, are you kidding? That's exactly what the guy was. Guys, they throw you under the bus all day long. And Jesus said, they're going to throw you under the bus all day long. I mean, we shouldn't go, oh, wow, I'm surprised. He said, the world rejected me, the world's going to reject you. All day long. But he says, stand firm. Hang in there. Know what you've got. You've got a great heritage. How many of you have ever heard... Just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? One, two, three hands, four hands. Okay. Jonathan Edwards is one of the giants of the Christian faith. I mean, this guy is the reformer's reformer. Jonathan Edwards stands as a pillar. Uh, uh, circa 1703, I think he died in 1770, something like that. This guy is a pillar since then of thought and intellectual thought. The Encyclopedia Britannica calls Jonathan Edwards probably the greatest mind in American heritage. In all of our country's history, the man was a solid Christian. He's written some of the most solid uh, uh, Christian doctrinal theology books that have ever been written. Men understand that. Everybody in the church is not some babbling idiot that just believes to be believing. He said, understand that your faith makes sense, but you have to have that faith. And there are going to be those that are attack you. And when they attack, there's not going to be anybody to defend you. Except, you've been furnished with all you need, the Holy Spirit, and you have the promise of eternal life. That's a pretty good defense. He said, I want you to hang in there. Look at verse 27. As for you, the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you have no... Now, I hear that about every week. I hear... Yeah, yeah, I don't need human teaching. That's not what he's saying. If you go to 1 Corinthians 12 and the gifts of the Spirit are laid out, they say, well, one of them is teaching and all the others. He's not saying you don't need a teacher. What he's saying is this, is you don't need human teaching. Here's why. Keep your finger there. We're going to take one more trip back to John's Gospel in the 16th chapter this time. John's Gospel, chapter 16. John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 7. Again, red-lettered. Tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. And I think we've even talked about this verse before. But as I sit and I think today, I'm thinking there can't have been much that's more valuable than walking with Jesus and the disciples. I mean, to be with Jesus Christ for those three years he was publicly teaching would have been something else. And Jesus said, I'm going to tell you something. You're better off if I leave. You're better off with me gone. Here's why. For when I go, if I don't go, the Helper cannot come. It's the Holy Spirit again. And if I go, I will send Him to you. Verse 13. And when He comes, He's the Spirit of truth, and He will guide you into all truth. You don't need 
human wisdom and human philosophy ending because you have the Holy Spirit again to furnish all you need in the area of teaching. Now, humans for sure can illuminate and enlighten. But men, the teacher in this class is not Tom Schrader, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that teaches you. It is not me. It is my job to prepare and I do the best I can. And it's my job, I think, to teach in a way that is as clear as I can make it. But there is not an exception of a week that goes by that there isn't one guy who comes up and says, that doesn't make any sense, and another guy who says, I never saw that before, that sure lightens everything up, and now I see the whole picture. Because the teacher of the class is the one doing the work, and that's what John says. He said, you've got the Holy Spirit and He's living in you. You don't need human wisdom. You need godly wisdom that will come through human beings, but it comes as the Spirit of God applies the Word of God. That's what happens. He said, understand that. Verse 27, back into 1 John. He said, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears we may have confidence and not to shrink will appear. Jesus is coming again. There is a time when Jesus will return. It hasn't happened yet. He will appear, and he said, I want you to have confidence. He's going to tell us where that confidence uh, uh, originates. He said, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. He said, there's a lifestyle change that takes place when I come to Christ in repentance and faith. And now he begins to tie this section together. In chapter 3, verse 1, he said, See how great a love. If you have the King James, it says... What manner of love is this? He said, what kind of love is this that God has? Little phrase there refers to something that is inexplicable. John said, what kind of love is it? I mean, is it an awesome love or a super love or a colossal love? He said, I can't describe it. I'm just going to say it this way. What manner of love is it? We saw that word when we studied uh, the Gospel of Mark a while ago. Remember when Jesus was on the boat, the disciples were in the boat, the storm was raging, and Jesus was asleep. And they came down and they said, Wake up. Do something. What did you have me do? He said, Calm it. He stood up. Remember what he did? He stood up and said, Shh. And it was quiet. And remember the disciples' response? Their words were this. What kind of man is this? The same thing that he says here about love. He said, we never saw a guy like this before. We never saw a guy that could go, shh, and it would stop. I used to do this when the kids were small. And kids. I'm a, I, I can't do any tricks. I'm not very good at card tricks or anything. So I, but but I, used to, I used to go with the kids, and we'd be in the car, and we'd come up to the house. I'd say, okay, girls, everybody look at that garage door, and I'll watch. Okay. Mm, go. And I'd push my, I'd have my remote control in the back, and I'd push it, and up that door would go, and their eyes would get, oh wow, Dad, wow, how do you do that? Make Mr. Landry's garage door do that. Well, I only do our own. That wouldn't be nice. Now the Bible says not to covet other people's garage doors, girls. They go, oh wow. And one day I kind of was moving a little, and I was taken for granted. And I gave him the little button, and sir said. Oh, what's that behind your back, Dad? I said, ah, it's just, I don't know. We'll get it out of here. Oh, that's how you do it. Hmm? 
But imagine if I could have taken them out to Lake Pleasant in the middle of a violent storm and stood them there and said, watch this, girls. And it stops, just smooth as glass. That would have been a while for them. They said, there's nobody like you around, Dad. I can't do that. That's exactly what happened here. They said, what kind of guy is this? John picks up the same phrase in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. He said, what kind of love is this? What kind of love is it that while we were sinners, He would die for us? What kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are? For this reason the world does not know Him, does not know us because it does not know Him. He said, it's an incredible love. He said, while we were yet sinners, He died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God demonstrated His love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He said, that's an incredible love. That's a love that we can't even begin to comprehend. When Jesus came along and began teaching about love, He had to go way, 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 way back and talk about a love that they had never heard before. So much so that when they began to write and they go back into the Greek, He had to dig up an old word called agape as they began to try to define what Jesus was talking about. The authors had to go and come up with the Greek word agape. That means unconditional love. We've never seen anything like it. They said, that's the love that Jesus has. Beloved, now we are children of God. Here's some good news. It has not yet appeared. I mean, it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. He said, first of all, I know He's coming. He said, secondly, I know that we're not quite there yet. I don't know exactly what we're going to be, He said, but I want you to know this. We're not there yet. We're going to be like Him, not like God. We're not going to be God, but we will be spirit in our body that's been resurrected. And he closes the section with this. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. He said, everybody who has this hope, this hope that is fixed upon Him. Paul writes about this hope in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. He says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for this blessed hope. See, when the Bible uses the word hope, it speaks of certainty. We lose that today. If I say, I hope the Sun Devils win a basketball game. Well, I mean, we know that there's a high degree of uncertainty there. Okay, I hope they do, but I know that they might not. When the Bible uses the word hope, again, the root word and the root meaning means certain. That's why he talks about confidence. You and I men can be certain because of the hope we have. We have the power of Jesus Christ and we have the confidence of eternal life based on His Word. And men, that allows us to live a life in an ungodly and hostile environment. And next week, he's going to tell us exactly how we live that life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and that it's true, and we thank you that we can call you, in fact, Father. Lord, thank you that we're part of your family. If we've come to your Son in repentance and faith, Lord, thank you for the truth of that. Thank you for the gift, the free gift of eternal life. 
Lord, we ask you to watch over us and guide us and let us experience that peace that passes all understanding. Father, let us feel that confidence in our life that allows us to face a very uncertain and unsure world with an absolute certainty in your Son. Father, help us understand that we can absolutely believe and trust what He says and who He says He is. God come in the flesh to die on the cross for us. Father, thank You for Your Word and thank You that it's true. ask You to watch over us and guide us and lead us and bring us back together again next week to study Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week.